Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in IndyCar listener Q&A show brought to you by you. Thanks for all the questions you sent in. Our friend Jerry Siddoth, who puts together the list each week, tells me how many do we have here. It was a pretty decent amount for a, quote, off week. 30 questions in about 2,000 words, he says. So we'll get to as many as we can. Spend about an hour or so, maybe even less getting through these have the mid ohio indycar round this weekend will not be there my wife's birthday is indeed tomorrow the 29th and so if i were to go to mid ohio i would need to get on a plane tomorrow and i probably shouldn't say this out loud but uh i love racing an awful lot it's been the backbone of my life i don't love it as much as my wife so yeah uh, as long as we have an IndyCar event that lands on the same weekend as my wife's birthday, I will not be attending those IndyCar events. So nonetheless, we have your questions here. Getting to the exact mid-season, 17 rounds. We have completed eight. We are about to complete number nine. And oh boy, all kinds of fun stuff going on here. Looking forward to an inbound call shortly from Michael Andretti. Got a couple of questions for him that certainly apply to the silly season. But nonetheless, say a big thank you as always to our partners who make the show possible, that being Cooper Tires, Discount Tire. The two of them, those crazy kids, working together to promote and do everything they can to help raise up the next generation of junior open wheel talent, that being on the USF Championships run by Anderson Promotions obviously powered by Cooper Tires, all three tiers of the USF Championships shod by Cooper Tires and also Discount Tire involved this year as well. TorontoMotorsports.com, some pretty amazing motor racing memorabilia you will find there. And then our beloved long-term friends at the Justice Brothers, makers of automotive chemicals and lubricants, those found in every paddock, every garage, Pretty much every racing series you can imagine, you will find the Justice Brothers involved, as well as just about every local dealership you go to. So great to have them as long-term friends and partners of the show. So as we have done, as of one week ago, I have remembered that whenever Jerry sends over the questions, combs through them, picks the ones that he likes the most, presents them in an order he thinks will be entertaining, he has indeed included a funny quote at the bottom, and so... We're going to continue here. Thanks to Jerry. Bring this one to you from Lily Tomlin. She says, when I was growing up, I always wanted to be someone. Now I realize I should have been more specific. <laughs> thank you, Lily. And thank you, Jerry. And yes, indeed, be more specific. You don't just be someone. Be, uh, be someone awesome uh, compared to someone terrible. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, uh, that's some good advice there um why don't we get rolling with our show here and say finally a big thank you as well to the Day, the listener group that is formed around the show they had a really nice shirt made for me that says Day rocks and they indeed do and if you want to join the Day, send them an email and they will welcome you into their daily hourly discord and twitter and you name it private chat send that email to prudayrocks at gmail.com p-r-u-e-d-a-y-r-o-c-k-s prudayrocks at gmail.com we're going to open the show with our pal a rocket surgeon uh our friend 
Zach Dean, you're going to open the show for us, asking if we can go over the stewarding process for IndyCar, wondering what the penalty process flow is like. That would obviously vary based on what kind of penalty we're talking about. If it's something like speeding on pit lane, it tends to be not something that requires a lot of debate unless there's you know some sort of bizarre thing that happens multiple drivers coming into the pits at the same time someone's going way too fast hits the person in front right at where the uh, speed limit starts and causes them to go over the speed limit they're obviously not going to penalize that driver for being over for a moment wasn't their fault but we rarely if ever see that there's rarely a need for people to discuss whether speeding warrants an actual penalty it's pretty cut and dry the on-track stuff that's where things get a bit interesting the way things have been done the way that they have parsed things out is instead of having kyle novak race director as the person who is governing over every single thing all calls either start with him or end with him couple years now for a little while now actually they have separated things out so that they have a former driver steward panel that makes decisions now they do have a pretty in-depth sheet that they work from based on tiers of penalties and if you do this that's going to be the the penalty or the potential penalty and rising severities in there and that kind of stuff but what they've had for a little while now used to be three person panel i'm forgetting if it was ever four but they've had max pappas former indycar driver race winner and former indycar driver race winner ari leindyke as a two-person driver steward adjudication panel and we've been told and i have no reason to disagree with this but been told that knowing that Ari had been a mentor, advisor of some sorts to young countryman Renus VK, that he would excuse himself in any incidents involving Renus. It's the only thing I can think of that is a bit of an exception to Max and Ari weighing whether driver A did something blocking, weaving, dragoning, or hitting, whatever it might be, that these two handle pretty much everything. I don't recall who steps in if Ari recuses himself, but that's basically the way things go. If it's an on-track thing, Kyle is wanting to leave himself fully available at all times to run the race, to not have to be a judge or the judge. And so process flow would be the stewards, making decisions and passing those upwards and i would have to assume if that is indeed the structure that they have built and want to stand on that that penalty whatever it would be or that non-call in the case of vk hitting and spinning felix rosenquist at road america would be handed out as is meaning it's not a case of the driver stewards having a recommendation and then passing it upwards to Kyle Novak, who then agrees or disagrees. 
if it is as it's been described to me, the stewards make the calls and those calls go forth. Um, I know that IndyCar president Jay Fry is often in race control during the races, if not during practice and maybe qualifying again, can't not saying he's always in there, but I know that he's there, um, a fair amount. Um, is he involved in any of the calls or opinions? Don't know. Um, I know IMSA president John Doonan is in race control at times there where Bo Barfield is in charge. Uh, I do not believe during the administration of a race that Doonan has any official role in the administration. I'd also have to assume that Jay has no official role in there as well. I can tell you just from an outsider standpoint, I do not like the idea of a racing series president being in race control while a race is happening. IndyCar, IMSA, NASC, I don't care. Uh, I don't like the idea of the race director's boss or the race steward's boss, any of the folks' boss being in the room while they're trying to run a race and act what we would hope with complete impartiality and without any outside influences. You could argue, Zach, of course, well, the president of a racing series and i'm not talking about like the ceo level running the business that is the racing series whatever it is i'm talking about the president of the series who is really the head of the operations side the people who actually show up bring the trailers put everything in place put the marshalling system lights up and wave the flags and run you through tech and it's right. The real true folks who make the event happen, at least in my head, curious if y'all agree or disagree. If there is some sort of great conundrum that only that's at like president level answering. Okay. Maybe you draft in the president to answer something or be a additional voice on some sort of crazy complicated matter. We know that, Presidents of racing series often are involved after an event. If there is something deep that happens that requires right a disqualification, a protest, or whatever, again, not totally, not totally out of the norm to have the big boss there to weigh in on things after they've gone sideways. But at least during the event, I do like the idea of this being a bit of a bubble with the doors locked. And nobody coming in, nobody having the opportunity to put their finger on the scale and tip it in any direction. Again, not saying that Jay, John, what Steve Phelps, I think is NASCAR's president, run down the list. I'm not saying any of them do that. Just saying I like the idea of none of them being able to be in there for it to even be a question. So anyways, that is generally the way things work. As I know it in IndyCar, Zach, there's, what, a 10 people or so in the room? Maybe 12? I, I could be wrong. But, yeah, there's a fair amount of people in IndyCar's race administration room. Uh, but in theory, the, the most powerful people making decisions on penalties are indeed the two stewards that have been defined. 
Uh, let's see. JJ Gertler say this question is inspired by driver changes in IMSA, but applies to IndyCar as well. Is there a requirement that the radios inside the helmets be connected with wires instead of having Bluetooth or some other wireless system so drivers can get out of the car more easily when necessary? Is there is a sp- or is there a specific technical reason that the connections need to be wired and not wireless? Yes, indeed. The case of IndyCar, and I know this is a growing thing that you'll find in most professional motorsports, higher level, and that's no disrespect to a <clears throat> SRO or something like that. That's kind of a second tier sports car series. That's professional. Uh, Trans Am, for example. Um, not exactly on the, on the top, top tier, but we have accelerometers that are placed in the earbuds, the wired earbuds, uh, of IndyCar drivers and those wired accelerometers do indeed connect to the data systems on the cars, the, uh, ADR accident data recorders. And so those do indeed measure forces and acceleration being experienced by a driver's head in an impact so yes uh, at least until we come up with something where those accelerometers little tiny ones uh, put into the uh, earbuds as they are formed until we come up with something jj where those can indeed be signals that are sent wirelessly we will indeed have wired uh, earplugs for the drivers that serve more than one purpose of just delivering sound to their ears. Uh, Kyle Lisk, you say, MP, any updates on Vassar Sullivan coming back to IndyCar? Need to catch up with our guys there. Congratulations again to uh, our man Jimmy Vassar and James Sully Sullivan for their double IMSA win last weekend in Watkins Glen. Uh, Their return to IndyCar was all but guaranteed. Uh, tied to Toyota's expected return, which unfortunately fell through. So as I wrote, I think last year, um, change of CEOs there, Penske Entertainment, Roger Penske in particular, got really far down the road with Toyota, had that CEO change. That came with a change of interest. The, uh, The CEO and the Toyota side, in particular here in the U.S. is what mainly referring to uh, their long and old relationship between Roger and the former CEO. And so they had come up with something where Penske Entertainment was going to help accelerate the process for them. It's also going to come with uh, some, not a financial incentive, I don't want to put it that way, but helping to expedite things, uh, offering of long blocks, as they're called. Uh, that being not all the components need for it needed to make a complete engine, but a lot of the, the bigger, harder stuff, things that take more time and definitely cost a lot more money to make. Uh, knowing that Roger is the co-founder and co-owner of Ilmore Engineering, makers of many things, but one of them, Chevrolet's IndyCar engines for decades upon decades, uh, there was an offer, I'm told, to provide Toyota slash TRD with uh, long blocks, call them, you know, basically the the same version of what we have now, uh, what we would have had with these 2.4 liter engines that have been, I don't know if we call them mothballed or scrapped altogether, but 
we know for sure that there was an offer to expedite things, help really get Toyota TRD up and running quickly to get involved in IndyCar by not having to do brand new design for a block and heads and such. And so those were things that were offered, seemed like there was interest. And then again, that aforementioned CEO change derailed those plans. So going to be a couple of factory teams as i understood kept hearing mclaren was going to be one of them um i asked behind the scenes about that and was given a non-answer that didn't say yes or no um but the vassar sullivan team was going to be a factory team i think was going to handle the majority of the initial testing and they were going to be on the grid as one of three factory teams. So I also believe, I apologize, I'm having to remember stuff I haven't thought about in a while, about something that never happened, but I do believe a chassis at least um, was delivered that was meant to be used in part of all this. And uh, yeah, so minus that, Minus a major entity paying for Vassar Sullivan to be an IndyCar. I don't know if that's going to change uh, with them not being an IndyCar. Uh, someone needs to step up and pay a significant amount for them to do it. And in the absence of that, they obviously have a great relationship with Toyota slash Lexus. Lexus has a new GT3 base car coming here sometime soon. I think they're going to end up staying plenty busy with what they have on the sports car side. Uh, let's see. Eric Franklin. So does the rumor of Daniel Ricardo moving over to Alpha Tori squash the seat that Alex Pillow is rumored for? Are they putting together a mega lineup for the Red Bull junior team with Pillow and Ricardo? Um, I don't know if Yuki Sonoda is at risk. I haven't heard anything lately of that being the case. Only thing again, heard probably haven't heard anything you haven't Eric, but yeah, other than Nick DeVries, certainly being a great question mark as to whether he's going to be one and done. I think that Nick DeVries slot is where Alex's greatest chances are found. Run down the list at the other teams there's a question mark of here or there and could this person or that person maybe not get extended but it seems that this is really the one obvious place for him to be and feels like the one and only uh, you look at alfa romeo i don't foresee any changes there had heard that Alex's management team wore out their welcome there, just hammering and hammering and hammering, trying to get their client an opportunity to race there and basically told, you don't need to come back. Uh, so I don't think that there's anything there. Uh, Alpine, I think they're pretty darn set. Uh, I haven't heard anything about... The Stroll family kicking their son out of uh, the Aston Martin there. Um, and I am unaware of any immediate changes coming to Williams. Um, I mean, there's the other side to this as well. 
keep in mind, young Mr. Plow is not talking about this, but his dream is to do Formula One. Is it a dream at any expense, at any cost? I'll, I'll take any seat available. I haven't seen anything in Alex to make me believe he's that desperate. Again, Alex Albon's had a couple of good runs this year at Williams, and the team's done some good updates that have shown well. Obviously, Canada uh, played to their favor and such. On average, though, the team's not much of a contender. So is going and driving for whichever team might be the absolute bottom of the heap. Is that something Alex would accept? I'd hope not. I haven't seen that side of him. And if you were to do that, I'd understand because for those with a formula one dream, it's the most powerful dream in motor racing has been forever. The I'll take anything from anyone though. Oh man, that's where, <laughs> that's where you find your name very soon after on some very unflattering websites, f1rejects.com and so on and so forth. And you go, yeah, wow. You were the king of whatever series you were in and you got an opportunity and you went to the really bad team. Oh, and then it all fell apart. And then you show back up a year or two or whatever later in your former series and you hope that one of the top teams has a seat available but that doesn't always happen and so that driver who left as the king went to a crappy team usually comes back driving for a mid-tier team in their former series and it's just this is a old story eric so i'm not claiming that alpha tori is a front-running team but I could just tell you that being a part of that institution would give me a lot of hope for Alex and think that this guy has a real reason to keep pushing to try and be there. Um, it would feel weird to see Danny Ricardo back there. Um, but regardless, if it ain't Nick DeVries seat, I'm not sure I can really think of one that would be realistically open that would offer him any chance of doing anything other than floundering and farting around at the back and leaving fully dissatisfied. So, oh, yeah. Uh, Josh Wilkert, say MP, first time questioner, but long time listener. And met you a few times. Josh, thank you for sending this in. I always love it when folks say, hey, this is a first time question. Uh, any info on Marshank Racing's Tom Blomkvist to IndyCar? Say, curious what's happening with the number 60 GTP MSR with the announcement of a second Wayne Taylor car. Um, it's funny. I saw Tom at Lamar and I've mentioned a couple times. I mean, I think I've been mentioning this for a little while and I think I might've been the first to mention it, but I'll keep mentioning it. All I know, all I've heard, no one will confirm it, but, uh, publicly at least, but all I've heard is Tom is headed to IndyCar next year, uh, with Shank. Which car? I feel confident in saying it'll be the one that Elio is currently driving. I do need to ring Shank. So although I'm quote on vacation, um, while my wife is sleeping or busy doing other things, uh, I do try and sneak a few calls in here or there because 
yeah, I'm on vacation, but it doesn't mean the world stops completely. Uh, one of those folks who need to ring a shank. I don't expect him to tell me anything here specifically to answer this kind of stuff, Josh, but it's just always good to catch up with shank and see what he's thinking about life, the universe and everything. Um, as for what's happening with the number 60 GTP car, uh, I am confident, hundred percent confident that Marshank racing will be in IMSA next year in the GTP class with the number 60 entry. I'll just leave it there. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think you'll see your favorite team doing their thing with some roster changes could be some other changes coming as well uh, let's see matthew featherman mp going to mid ohio for the first time awesome my wife is joining me for her first indycar race okay so got an assignment here you need to send in uh something next week and just give us a book report tell us how it went love to hear uh, your thoughts of the track and also especially your wife's thoughts about her very first indycar race pluses minuses you name it uh, any musty items while there, meaning at the track or out in town? Um, couple of fun things in town in particular. I'm forgetting the name of the little ice cream shop and such, but, um, if I remember, I'll try and post it on the good old social medias, but there's a great little ice cream place that a lot of drivers and folks make their way to, cause it can often be hot. And I did see the forecast and it said it's going to be crazy balmy 90 degrees early in the event, which <laughs> yeah, nothing like having a dog breathe in your face all day, which is kind of what that feels like there. Um, in and around the track, it's in the same general domain as a road america where a lot of cool people a lot of friendly people a lot of camping going on it's a very much a communal type event compared to some others where folks show up sit in a grandstand and then go away this is one where you know folks pack up stock up bring you know stuff to barbecue since it's fourth of july weekend and so i would say depending on your personality types right if you're introverted maybe this doesn't fit if you're extroverted uh it would fit but lots of great stuff to see in the infield right take the little walkover bridge there and see all kinds of stuff there's some pretty cool vendors you'll tend to find some fun stuff you can take home but there's a lot of, it, it's a walking track. It's not a fixed facility where you find a spot and sit there for all three days. So, and I probably end up making this recommendation for almost every track whenever I'm asked. But for your planning purposes, please bring, whether it's a backpack or a little rolling dolly, cart, whatever, uh, bring some sort of folding out camping type chair, uh, Hopefully stuff that's not too heavy, but it is very much a track where I recommend you say, okay, I've never been here. So for the first practice session, we're going to go walk up here and sit down and enjoy and watch. And then for the second practice session, we're going to wander down here and wander over there. And you can pick almost anywhere to start just the overstating the obvious part there's an infield and an outfield uh the infield's pretty cool can't get out too far in the 
keyhole and such, but you can get to a lot of places. Uh, the little Thunder Valley where the cars dip and rise, I think, turns, what, five, six, seven, eight from the infields. Pretty cool to watch them motoring through there. Um, but then also the outside of the track is, pre- is like really cool. It may be the lesser explored uh, of the infield and outfield options. So uh, walking around in the outside there, that's what I really like and where you can have a little bit of a, a little more of a individual experience compared to being around a lot of fans. So it's not a giant track. Wouldn't take super long to move around. And also with a lot of sessions there, right? A lot of, uh, a lot of different classes going on. Definitely pick and choose different vantage points to try and uh, soak them in. Other last little quick thing, ask those who are there, hey, where do you love viewing from? Obviously, if they're kind of camping in one area, you go, well, I, I guess I figured out where you love the most. But um, ask folks as well because they might say, you know, how's this? I know that I can give you some general advice where to go. I haven't found a bad spot. That's the thing. It's not like go to turn three and turn seven, and those are the best. It's really a super enjoyable place everywhere. But you might have some folks say, you know what, I've found over here, if you just go around that little bend, you can see this thing that's really amazing, or the sounds are phenomenal in this area. So uh, that's another thing about this event too, is a lot of cool folks. So um, embed yourself in that community if that's something you and your wife are keen to do uh darren the tire king here we go you have sent this in more than once so we're getting to it say please explain install apps say understand checking for leaks and whatnot but it seems the car sit on pit lane forever after the first lap isn't that time valuable what are they all checking um not a problem at darren tire king so yes indeed between every race these cars are stripped down, broken down to the very last compound and reassembled. And it's not as if teams question their skills or work, but when you do have more than 1,000 total items and pieces that are disassembled and reassembled between every race, every nut, bolt, washer, etc., uh, hydraulic fitting, water hose oil pipe all these things you do indeed want to take some time after reassembling this highly complex machine to take the bodywork off and look at everything now there are varying degrees to this practice if you have a car that has been through a pretty serious crash at whatever the last race was uh, you are definitely going to be taking all of the easily removable bodywork off. Now, granted, uh, the engine cover is maybe the only thing that comes off easily uh, in the, the shock cover as well. Side pods, not so much. A little bit of a fight, but if you have a car that was beaten up pretty good and has new parts and pieces going on, um, it's not uncommon for those cars to get blown apart all the way with bodywork. If it's something that it's just a pretty much a, a routine reassembly, you'll see a number of teams take the engine cover off, which exposes a decent amount of the car, but not a ton. But 
allow them to poke around, look at things, you know, use their flashlights to see if they see any leaks or whatever anywhere. But that's the, the primary thing they're doing. As you mentioned, you know that you, you understand that part, but the main thing with these extensions to 75 minutes for opening practice sessions, is the desire for IndyCar to have them on track more, to put on more of a show. Done a little bit of a enticement in saying you can run one set of Firestone's alternate tires in that first session only prior to qualifying. So that's been a thing where you go, okay, cool. So you try and entice teams to do more running by giving them the one and only opportunity to sample those alternate tires in that extended first session rookies we know they've gone to this practice somewhat recently of allowing them an extra set of tires which is great what you tend to see is tire field blast out more or less the entire field not always but more or less all of the field come right in do that install check then you tend to get the rookies who fire right back out knowing that they have that extra set of tires to use you will on occasion see a couple of drivers go right out and stay out and do however many laps on an opening stint. Then they'll come in, engine cover will come off at a minimum, they'll look around or whatever. But really, it's a question of why are we sitting for so long? I know I've just mentioned that there are extra sets of tires available, but not enough for a team to feel comfortable to use in that opening session to then have a sufficient amount of tires left for the rest of the event. Uh, I think on average, what is it, nine sets of tires for the weekend? I could be totally on crack. Actually, let me do this. I'm going to do something totally crazy. I'm going to go look instead of rely on my failing uh, memory here. Uh, no, that's not it. Uh, let me see if I can find this once again. Sorry, uh, please bear with me. Uh, da here we go. Uh, yeah. Um, it's not enough sets for teams to feel super confident to just go out and run constantly in that opening session. So it's a bit of tire conservation that we see at play. That is 100% of what is going on. So yes, I can totally understand and sympathize and agree with the frustration of, hey, cool, can't wait for this weekend's event to start. Hey, I'm here in the grandstands watching it or wherever or watching it on Peacock. And hey, they all went out and now they aren't doing a damn thing. And, you know, with exception of a Stingray Rob or a Benjamin Peterson or another rookie who might only spend a minute or two on pit lane um, and then go out pretty quickly to put those extra set of tires to use. But that is indeed the thing. It's teams working back from the race saying, okay, how many stops is it going to be? Two, three, four. Okay, however many. Well, we obviously got to start on a set that we're using from qualifying. We're going to use more than one set in qualifying. We're going to do this. I mean, this is a tire consumption question. To close here, the, the natural fault question is, well, then why don't they just give them more tires? Well, there's no giving involved. Uh, it is paying. So, Teams pay, 
they lease they do not own any of the tires that they use but teams pay a pretty decent seven figure-ish number uh, for a season of a tire lease for each entry and within that price is a certain amount of tires i would imagine if more money was paid then additional set or sets could be made available i have not heard anything from any team saying we want to pay more money for tires um bear in mind as well uh let's see i'm comfortable in saying half the teams and i'll I'll look here and do a, a proper count uh teams that used to compete in indycar once competed in indycar under different names cart era champ car era um the indie racing league forerunner to today's indycar series especially when there were uh two tire brands in goodyear and firestone there are many teams who once upon a time competed with zero tire bill given the tires by the manufacturer um some of them paid to use them um yeah the, the, more than half of the teams currently come well let me see if i said one f one two i'll say three there four for sure five six, yeah six to seven teams of the 10 full-timers were once upon a time either given free tires or paid to use them that makes them hesitant to want to pay what they currently do much less pay more money so yeah uh i don't foresee this problem going away sadly so uh maybe we need some sort of like dance troupe or something to come on pit lane and just entertain us while we watched a lot of the field sit for about 20 minutes to half an hour of that 75 minute opening session uh jamie dolinger you say carrying over from last week as instructed says, i was curious what the minimum speed is in general like varying from track to track the leader is allowed to pace um say also i know that there are restart zones at tracks prior to start finish line however if there's a zone designated where the leader be at the start of the race or the restart where they can start to gap the pace car and start setting their pace behind um the car going into a starter restart zone oh boy we're getting into the the minutiae here uh, and yes i i didn't indeed say please send this in um i mean what is the the pace car normally trying to do uh on the ovals like what 70 80 90 like pretty significant speed to keep the cars up and moving and, and warm enough that isn't always the case obviously on a road course street course in particular that might be slower and more winding right so i mean i know that they want to keep the speeds up uh for sure when possible but i don't know if i can say that there is a specific minimum speed uh the leader is expected to pace from track to track knowing that doing a restart coming into the the final turn complexes at toronto for example i mean that's just creeping slow compared to indy 500 so i uh, would say for sure that it is definitely a case-by-case thing jamie um but i do know and i don't have a number specifically at hand to offer you 
there is a general expectation placed that's given to the drivers in the driver meetings that says, hey, if you're leading, don't park the field and then accelerate, right? Like that old stop-start routine. It was once the norm and fully accepted. Doesn't matter what series you were in. Uh, For a long, long, long time, the leader was allowed to jerk with the entire field. Bring them to a crawl uh fake accelerate you know give a little burst of acceleration but then back off which would cause the driver behind you drivers to do the same and back off and the minute the leader saw them back off they'd go so you create this significant gap by just gaming the system that's been effectively ruled as no longer acceptable so I would say that that is is the main thing. Most series, I know we're talking about IndyCar, but most series in general are looking for consistent speed. And the the leading block, if you want to call it that, because again, not you don't always have the entire field all lined up and all accelerating at the same time for a start or restart. But what they tend to look for is consistent speed not a slowing down and then speeding up to try and trip up the person behind you. So that's expected coming into a a quote restart zone. Um, uh, If that's the form of racing that uses them uh, or just in general, race controls looking for consistent increase in speed before taking off. Um, Steve Grinstead asking if we can please return to localized yellows. Yeah, would love to see that too. Um, <laughs> yeah, seems like we should be able to have more of that instead of full course yellows. I know that IndyCar with their EM marshalling system, the light panels that they have, um, I'm told that they intend to do more and more of them um, now that they have a stronger capability to dictate where the where and when those yellow zones would be uh, identified right a local yellow uh, obviously you can ask the flaggers to wave those flags to make them yellow but they also have the ability to uh, turn on those light panels to indicate uh, sections as well instead of just going full course yellow for what feels like everything even if it isn't everything um let's see ryan caminetti todd murray you're asking uh Read about Roger Penske's visit to the stock car race, the Milwaukee Mile. Commented that the track has a long way to go before hosting an IndyCar race. Yeah, I've uh, had that conversation with a couple of other folks as well. Um, Say, so what is your expert opinion on the likelihood of an IndyCar race at Milwaukee in the coming years? Um, he said, uh, for hashtag me personally, are we still doing that? You know, I haven't had a hashtag me personally thrown in here in a long time. So good on you there. Um, say this is near and dear to my heart as i live a mile away from the speedway attended my first race there in 1991 was a perennial attendee at the uh, races until they left here's the the thing that i can tell you was the conversation i had and others had with me on this topic while at or just soon after road america when the news of this uh, came up of rp visiting the track itself, the, the racing surface, appears to be fine. IndyCar was last there eight years ago. It hasn't been too long since we were there. 
we believe the on-track portion of an event would be just fine. What I have not seen change is everything else. Um, forget who I was having the conversation with, but like there's a, a tunnel that goes from the infield to the outfield. And like it's really not something where myself and someone else who is a larger human being could maybe pass each other in that tunnel without bumping into one another. Um, it's things like that where you go, if you are a older indie car fan who has been to the Milwaukee mile and loved the Indy car events there, and you are steeped in Indy car slash Milwaukee nostalgia, you'd just be happy to have the race return there. And that will probably do. If you are any kind of newer, more modern fan, who's never seen Indy car there, or maybe only been there once or twice when IndyCar was there. But you've been to a lot of other races since then. And you've seen the general rise in overall presentation, human comforts, catering to one's general needs and desires and expectations. You will probably not have a favorable event at milwaukee it is a facility that for pure racing alone is just fine but if we are asking folks who are accustomed to going to the indianapolis motor speedway knowing that it has really done a great job at bringing creature comforts that we really never had at motor racing events but that's changed there and hey let's think about people and if you're going to go spend all day out in the sun out in the wind or whatever like what are the things you'd want to feel comfortable if you're going to bring friends who are used to going to major league baseball game or basketball or football where you go wow <laughs> this does feel like a very personalized event i can get anything that i want to eat or drink i can seek shelter I can write just so many things about this are truly kind of handmade for you, the, uh, the attendee motor racing. Wasn't that way almost forever. You had to bring in everything you wanted to make yourself comfortable. However many things you were allowed to bring in, because that also is a bit of a barrier stuff you can and can't bring in. And so the, the general shift in events almost everywhere we go for major professional races is one where those venues have said, okay, we got to do a much better job in making you and maybe your friends and family who aren't hardcore racers feel like, Hey, I'm not stuck out in some backwoods place that never thinks about me and doesn't give a crap. I've heard nothing to suggest here. Unfortunately, that those kinds of, modernization efforts have taken place at milwaukee starting with something like a tunnel to go from the infield to uh the outside of the track that isn't like some dark tunnel from the middle ages so yeah that's the thing that concerns me 
capable of holding a race yes capable of building a new fan base now that a lot of again realize eight years isn't forever but you know uh you probably have a decent amount of new folks turning up curious to see what's going on and whether they want to come back um it's the impression left on them that i fear without some significant investments in the infrastructure right uh could leave things in a not a great way what comes to mind though is hey iowa speedway for example it's never been a place with a lot of bells and whistles right it's always been pretty basic with what penske entertainment and the speedway itself and everyone involved in the promotions did in making the double header happen last last year was to kind of import infrastructure and creature comforts and i realized that they still had plenty of improvements to make there by no means perfect but to me it was a positive indicator of here's a track that's pretty bare bones okay you've spent a lot of money put a lot of time in but here's what it could be if you really tried to think about the paying audience first and to cater to their needs could a penske entertainment and whomever bring in something like that to a milwaukee to make it something that everybody would enjoy not just the hardcore old school racers who remember being there back in the day when mario won and 19 such and such uh definitely possible certainly wouldn't be cheap uh let's see where are we at in the show y'all hey we are turning the final corner Rishi Despawn. Rishi, how are you, buddy? Uh, Rishi says, from the outside looking in, locking up an 8500 champ. Uh, nope, sorry. We got a party foul here, Rishi. Uh, we ha- there are no Indy 500 champions on this podcast or anything that I do because you can't be the champion of a single race if it's the fifth race on the calendar. You can win a race. You can't be a champion of a race. Unless we say every winner of every race is a champion. Because if we can call the Indy 500 winner a champion, then we can call Alex Pillow the Road America champion. Uh, So, yeah, you can win a race in the middle of a championship, but you can't be the champion of a race in the middle of a championship. There we go. Sorry. Uh, Rant over. Um, If an Indy 500 winner and title contender like Marcus Erickson... um, locking him up to a long-term fully funded ride sure seems like it'd be a no-brainer for chip ganassi racing you say what gives why aren't they marcus seems like a potential sponsor's dream oh boy um yeah so a little bit of background here just because i feel like it's necessary for those who don't follow every little minutiae uh, of indycar movement so Marcus Erickson has signaled for a while. It started last year, as I understand, of telling the team, hey, um, you need to recalibrate how you think of me, and you need to convert me from being someone who pays for the pleasure of driving for you to someone that you pay to drive for you, like you do for Scott Dixon, like you do for Alex Pillow. Team has shown no interest. So I know that this has bubbled up as a item this year 
I, I feel like I might've written about it for the first time. If not, maybe I was the second person to the story, but whatever. Um, but this has been a known thing since last year, last season and no interest from the team in acquiescing to Erickson's request. As I understand it, that request continues to be made. Hi, <laughs> still here, uh, still under contract until the end of the season, right? We've, we've known that, determined that for sure. Uh, he's under contract. That's not, a que- not in question, but that runs out here in a couple of months. Um, I think the bigger thing to understand here to answer the question as you say here, isn't signing Erickson to a long-term funded thing a no-brainer for Ganassi? They've had that opportunity for a while and have not acted upon it. Is there some sort of brinksmanship here? Uh, Are they playing IndyCar contract chicken? Are they racing towards each other, hoping to see who will blink? I don't think so. I think there's a a greater message to understand that is really straightforward. Last year with the Alex Pillow Ganassi contract situation where he tried to leave, signed with McLaren, so on and so forth. We had a situation spoken publicly by Zach Brown at the time, CEO of McLaren Racing, took ganassi to task and also just spoke this largely across i guess indycar f1 you name it and i'm paraphrasing but he basically was saying look if you have a star driver super high talented asset and you don't sign them to a long-term deal uh you're an idiot and it's on you if they choose to leave and go elsewhere um it was Zach in very simple terms saying, uh, the only reason I went for Polo is because he told me he was available. And if anyone is stupid enough to not lock up the Alex Pelos of the world to make folks like me and anyone else incapable of taking them off your hands, well, that's on you. It's a really clear message since heard that you know pato is signed for eight thousand years and dixon is signed for i forget when i I don't remember the exact year but i've heard it's like another three or four years right like we're getting pretty deep into the decade by that point in time um i haven't heard a single thing about ganassi trying to sign erickson to a multi-year deal to keep him and pay him and so that is really and truly worth acknowledging at its full face value rishi you and i and i'm sure others would say hey this guy is (laughs) always contending for you and winning races for you is he as good as a dixon or a polo i don't know right those guys are pretty special but how's this if scott dixon is at 100% on the talent potential level and Pelot's at 100%. If Erickson's at 99.8 or 
I would think that would be something you'd want to hold on to. So I don't feel like I'm saying anything disrespectful to Marcus, but Scott Dixon is a six-time champion. That's different than someone who's won zero championships. So I would not put Marcus, in terms of talent, the same level of Dixon, because you need to add certain accomplishments in your career to then be rated at the same level. Polo, realize he's won one championship, not three or six, but he's won one. Um, he's won three races so far this year to Marcus's one. I feel fine saying on talent, demonstrated talent, Rishi, that Alex is ahead of Marcus. But not by much, right? So they're losing Polo. That's not a question. They're losing Polo. Rumored to have been offered between three and four million dollars a year to stay. Heard that from numerous people, other drivers, other teams, you name it. And again, it's rumored, so we're not claiming that as fact, but I've heard that from some a number of real people. You go, well, that's that's a pretty decent chunk of money. Turned it down, according to those rumors. If you're losing the guy in the 10 car and the guy in the 8 car seemingly going to get you more Indy 500 wins, always be in contention, going to get you a couple wins per year, fight for titles each year, seems to me like that would be someone to hold on to. By demonstration, and for reasons I don't fully understand, I've heard nothing to suggest as of yet, that the team says, okay, we're going to move you over to the 10 car. We want to sign you to multiple years. We're going to obviously pay for the car ourselves through our sponsors, and we're going to pay you good money. So the thing I keep wondering about, and I'll ask Michael about when he rings, is, hey, I've heard Erickson's name associated with Andretti. Heard it associated with Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan. Heard his name associated with Meyer Shank Racing. Heard his name newly-ish, past month or so, associated with Errol McLaren. Uh, I'm just scrolling through the list to make sure I don't forget any. Um, right? If we're talking about midfield or better teams that we know we'll have at least one vacancy next year or strong potential vacancy. Um, Andretti Autosport, Errol McLaren, Meyer Shank, RLL. Um, that's dang near half the grid. I know for a fact has an interest in Marcus Erickson driving for them. Some more than others, meaning... Is Errol McLaren chasing Marcus as hard as some of the other teams are suggested to? Not that I've heard, but there's an interest that I'm aware of. Falling back to that Zach Brown thing, Rishi, to close, um, lock him up. Lock him up long-term. If you see that person as a true star, true, important, integral part of your future, well, by action so far, there's still time for it to change. I don't know if there's a lot of time, though, right? Usually July 1st or August 1st, uh, contractually. That's where the uh, can't talk to anybody clause 
comes to an end. And I think it's August 1st for Pelot. If that's the case, since he's a Ganassi driver, I would assume Marcus would be, they would put him on the same date. Um, August 1st would in theory be the first day that those two drivers can do something, look to sign somewhere else. And so we have, what is that? A month and a couple of days until we get there. Uh, but I am indeed very surprised that here we are this far out or this far along so close to that. All right, all chains are off. Do as you please. Um, I don't think we're going to see Marcus staying because we've seen nothing indicated by the team that they plan on making that happen. Um, let's see, just going to scroll through the last couple. All right. You got two here. We're going to close with. And let's see. We're going to go with at new Gaiden. How are you there? Been a little while. Uh, had you on the show here. So thank you. You're asking, does Ganassi have a backup plan? If they do happen to lose both Erickson and Polo? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm aware of some drivers they have an interest in. They're losing Polo. It's not again, to, I don't think that's a, a question, uh, anymore, nor. Yeah has it been really, but we know that Kiffin Simpson, who's a part of their family racing in Indy lights with HMD team. Uh, he's going to IndyCar with Ganassi. Don't know if it's going to be next year. Doesn't look like he's ready for next year, but he'll be there within a year or two. So he'll be in a car for sure. Uh, already mentioned that Dixon's going to be there for a few more years. So that's awesome. Uh, Marcus Armstrong, I know, would like to stay, would like to be full-time. know that more money would need to be found for that to happen, but I think the team would be interested in, in having him back. So guessing that would be remaining in the same car. But as for who they would slot into the 10, who they would slot into the 8, I know there are some names. There are some names out there. That, that could certainly be of interest to them. If I'm looking at IndyCar and IndyCar experience and availability, what's not jumping out is any kind of amazing, oh, wow, slot that person in right away and they take over the team. They're so good. Um there are a couple of options I'm aware of of folks where you go, ooh, that has the potential to be awesome, but we would just have to see, right? You have to go prove that through your results. I think the leading name there, Callum Eilat, right? I think the guy's really special. I think the Ganassi team really likes him. Um, seen him do some pretty amazing things for a very small team. It's not uncommon for a driver in that situation to step up to a big team just as Alex Polo did coming in from Dale Coyne and make big waves. So, but this would not be a proven champ uh, race winner type thing where you go, oh, okay, we know exactly what we're getting. There'd still be a little bit of that show and prove element. Those are the main things, just to answer your question, that I see among the current IndyCar field, right? Um, 
nobody that leaps off the page as a instant transformational driver who we know will take the 10 car or the eight car, assuming they don't hold on to Ericsson and just blast right to the front, maintain what Pelot has been doing, for example. Heard Malukas's name, David Malukas's name mentioned in and around Ganassi. Have heard that that probably isn't going to be a thing. Uh, so, and we'll see, but I would guess, I would wonder if there will be a looking around to Europe as they've done, right? Tested drivers, Formula One test driver affiliated type folks, Formula E affiliated folks, they've done some of that. I know they were really hot on, uh, what is it, Robert Schwartzman, um, but I understand. He is signed to Ferrari for something on the sports car racing side next year, so that would probably be hard to engineer. But I think what we're looking at here for the teams that will have one or two slots available, um, probably going to be some some risks involved. Looking somewhere else and hoping that someone turns into the next Polo type, the next Pato type. I don't know if there's anyone that you go, ooh, right away guaranteed to do that. Linus Lundqvist is still sitting out there waiting to do great things. We believe he's going to be a star IndyCar driver. Got to see him do at least one IndyCar race before we can, can cement him as a future champ, though. So that right now is really the answer to the question. Do they have any firm guaranteed folks to jump right in and continue what we're seeing from a Polo and Erickson right now? No. Ilot's the closest thing that comes to mind is someone who's shown us really good things, but got to go get that first pole, that first win and, and cement and confirm that you're that guy. Uh, I think he will be assuming that they end up hiring him, but yeah, not a lot after him though. That's the thing. That's where next year just looks a little bit odd. Uh, Meyershank Racing could very much have two seats to fill. Already mentioned, I think Blomqvist is going to be in one of those, but they could have two seats to fill. If you're going to make driver changes, whether it's one or both, uh, you would want to do it believing that you're putting folks in who are going to provide better results, right? So uh, if you're taking a flyer on one, would you take a flyer on two? I'd hope not. Right? Does a Felix Rosenquist fit in nicely at Meyershank? Maybe. Going back to Ganassi? Maybe. Uh, Hunkos Hollinger? Who knows? Again, there's not a lot of holy cow, look who we just got. We are going to wipe y'all out. So that's where the Ganassi tactics right now, um, I'm not fully understanding them because they don't seem to make total sense to me. Um, we're going to close the show here. Hannah McDonald, say MP. Um, I think on this week, you're going to have a lot of very serious questions about silly season and race control and dive bombs. I'm going to ask something even more serious. You suggested weeks ago that you try to get video of Pato Awards ridiculously strong forearms. You say, I've been waiting with bated breath. May I suggest arm wrestling if you're not sure how to present the information? 
and much love to your extended family, human and feline. Hannah, thank you uh, for helping to close the show with this. Um, are you saying that I am the one to arm wrestle the drivers with the ridiculously strong forearms? Because while I'm confident in my own strength, I know that my forearms, while strong, uh, are probably nothing like a Pato or a New Garden or a Rossi who just kind of focus on nothing but that. Um, would they actually do this? And all you're going to hear is, well, what if I hurt myself? Well, come on, man. You race an IndyCar, right? <laughs> you do something where risk is uh, central to that. Uh, would you not just uh, arm wrestle someone? But anyways, um, I need to consult with the fine Jim Leo, uh, owner of Pit Fit, and ask how might we convey forearm strength because if i'm going to say that pato who actually he's the one who said it but i agreed with it has like the strongest forearms you might ever find on a race car driver um how do you quantify that because if we we're gonna proclaim someone as having the uh the best or i don't know if there's a device um or if it's just jim right maybe jim as an expert maybe he could be the one we could get drivers lined up and uh maybe that's it maybe we need to have the ridiculously strong indycar forearms grand prix and i think yeah so we, there has to be some sort of judging but we also maybe need to have the drivers judge each other because that would just create endless bickering and infighting and all I want to see is this just devolve into a total mess. So that's what I'm looking for here. Not something really, you know, strong and journalistic and whatever revelatory. I just want to see them arguing. Um, but yeah, and challenging each other. So Hannah, you've come up with the best idea I've heard in a long time. I appreciate you for sending this in. And uh, thanks to everybody for all the questions you sent in. We got we to gotta do this. My next race that I'm traveling to... I don't know why I'm saying traveling to unless they held a race in my home city, which they're not. Um, I think it's going to be Iowa. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm going to miss Mid-Ohio this weekend. It's been a long time since I've done Toronto. The uh, travel costs there are just prohibitive, but I think Iowa's going to be it. So, yeah, let me see what I can come up with for uh, Iowa, maybe, or Brickyard Grand Prix or something like that. But uh, we got to make this happen, and it's got to be silly. So thank you for sending this in. Thanks to everybody for tuning in and to our friends at Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com and Discount Tire. And I will speak to y'all next week.